Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, I feel so fortunate we are joined by Mark Roberge, the founding partner at Stage 2 Capital, author of the Sales Acceleration Formula, and early stage Senior Vice President of Sales and Services at HubSpot. So today, we'll be covering three main areas with Mark. First, his book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, and how the key concepts are still critical to -to go-to-market success in 2023. Second, the catalyst behind founding Stage 2 Capital. And third, the exponential impact of go-to-market operators as investors. So, Mark, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. (laughs) Yeah, you bet, Ray. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. You know, I engineer undergrad, Accenture, a couple of years, wrote code. This is right before the dot-com craziness was staffed on a startup and was like, oh my gosh, I'm never looking back. This is amazing. Maybe a lot of guests don't realize that pre-97, 98, startups weren't really a thing. You know, like I didn't have any peers in college that were like, I'm going to do a startup. Like the whole crazy, the late 90s, which you experienced even more intensely than I did, changed all that. So I, I got staffed on a startup and loved it and went to a startup in New York and then found myself, that one failed. And found myself at business school at MIT. And that's where I met the co-founders of HubSpot. And that's how I got into sales and as the first salesperson there and the fourth employee, and then rode that one for nine years through the IPO as CRO. And then was invited to build out the sales curriculum at Harvard Business School, which I still execute today. And then in the last four years, been doing the stage two capital, venture capital scene in order to try to make a, a big impact on the go-to-market side with, with entrepreneurs, which is my passion. Wow, what a journey, right? From engineer to startup entrepreneur to MIT and now teaching sales at Harvard. I, I must admit, I did the early stage startup thing also early in my career and I was went to Netscape as you and I, I were know. talking about, which right. was very fortunate, but I couldn't get into MIT, so I just married an MIT grad. That was my <laughs> Did you? Do you know I what did. course she was? Yeah, she was course two. Ooh, I don't know that one. Must be one of um, the like bioengineering or something like that. Like what is it? Um, mechanical engineering. Mechanical. That's all. That's right. what I was undergrad. Okay, I didn't know it was course two. Awesome. Okay, and then she got her master's in the corporate real estate development program at MIT. Very cool. Very cool. But anyhow, that that just tells our listening audience how much smarter than my wife is than I am. <laughs> but let's focus right. on your journey. And you know, I mentioned that, and you also mentioned that you were the first kind of SVP of sales and services, really the first CRO at HubSpot from 07 to thirteen, but. I wanted to start here with the sales acceleration formula, the book you wrote in 2015. So it's been seven years. And my first question, Mark, is as I reread the book this weekend, what do you think about the concepts? Are they still relevant in today's customer acquisition process? Very much so. Every year, it kind of sells about the same amount, which I'm shocked at. I mean, I think the first year 
was maybe 2x. But every year since then, because I donate all the funds to uh, an awesome nonprofit called build.org, B-U-I-L-D, if you want to check it out, B-U-I-L-D. Um, and it's kind of the same check every year. So I guess I have statistical evidence, right, that it's still still relevant. I still get a lot of emails and LinkedIn messages from people on how they've applied things and how it's impacted their businesses. I would say like I'm quite surprised about it. The writing of the book was very accidental. Um, I never aspired to be an author or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm humbled to be one. But I was at, uh, in the final couple of years at HubSpot, I was having breakfast with an amazing author named Jill Conrath, who you probably know, Ray, she's written so many bestsellers in our field uh, of sales. And we were just talking and she was listening to my story and wrote like The Art and Science of Sales by Jill Conrath and Mark Roberge. And she handed it to me. She's like, I want to write this book together. And I was like, well, Jill, I never thought I'd write a book and I'm not a very good writer, but how can you pass down an offer like that from a best-selling author, right? So, so I wrote a chapter and she wrote a chapter and she read it and she's like, you got to write your own book. Like, let's do the second one together. But this whole thing is like, this is needed out there. It was just kind of, I, I don't know if you call it like an autobiography of like w- how I built the sales team at HubSpot, which was like, I, you know, you mentioned Ray, like the MIT journey and the engineering and, and starting as coding. I was so lucky and didn't know it that having the opportunity to build a sales org from scratch in 2006, when we were going through this cloud internet transformation and all these go-to-market teams are moving from outside orgs where no one used the CRM to these inside teams where their day-to-day, minute-to-minute was dependent on the CRM. And we had all this data and to be like that background that I had with very little bias of how sales worked over the last few decades was just a perfect opportunity that I didn't even know I was stumbling into. And so it was like this opportunity where like now all of a sudden we were armed with all this data and we could apply data and science to a field that is traditionally known as artistic and magical and hard to bring any science to. And that's really what the book was about. Everything from how I hired, how I trained, how I managed, how I coached, how I compensated, how we generated demand for a sales org in a very data-driven scientific way. And those principles have underlying frameworks that are not unique to 06. They, it's stuff I still teach at HBS and the students um, go off and apply them today. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to Brent Adamson, who wrote The Challenger Cell and The Challenger Customer just yesterday on the podcast. And same thing. He wrote those books over 10 years ago, right? And they still are so relevant today. But I thought I was going to talk to you all about metrics during this podcast. But in Chapter 7 of the book, you wrote something that just it struck me. And you just mentioned it again about coaching, using metrics to inform your coaching. And what you said was you had a metrics-driven skill diagnosis and coaching process. Can you share that? Because I think in 2022 and forward, it's so important to realize that metrics can inform how you coach sales professionals, not just how you make decisions. It's huge. It's huge. And yeah, I would say when I would speak to sales leaders and managers, you know, and try to learn from them. It just felt like as they were trying to assess, diagnose, and improve their salespeople, 
they were operating on sort of anecdotal instincts. You know, if I just asked a sales manager about a particular salesperson and they weren't living in this data-driven, data-oriented environment, 90% of the time they would just say they just need to make more calls. And they would just say, bang the phones harder. And when you look at the data, in my experience, like two thirds of the time, it is, that's actually not the case. And so just, it's so powerful when you have nicely defined the various stages through which a meeting and opportunity will progress as it moves toward closure. And to capture that in detail for every single salesperson and to be able to kind of look at each individual benchmarked against the, the average performance and see where they're excelling and where they're not. And to be able to like, you know, every month, basically we'd sit down with each salesperson, go through those numbers and teach them how to analyze them, teach them how to like reflect on the fact that they're making 25% more calls than the average person on the floor. And yet their progress from stage six to stage seven in the opportunity flow is 30% lower than the average on the floor. And why is that? And let's say stage six to stage seven was like getting from like contract to close or something. Then we would work with them to come up with a coaching plan to progress through that and would actually book the coaching calls on that first day of the month during the month. Let's say, Ray, it's, we're going to meet on Friday at three and the following Wednesday at 9 a.m. And we'd book that. And that was just like a wonderful little flywheel that we had going on in the organization because so many organizations are on that like reactive hamster wheel. Oh my gosh, it's a week ahead, a week from the end of the quarter and we're only at 70%. Let's, I never have any time for anything except just trying to get on as many calls with customers as possible and close business. And this was a very structured and proactive way to drive performance and improvement through the monthly data assessment and reflection on where each individual was and the, the planning of coaching that was you know, fine-tuned precisely on the data-driven diagnosis of that rep's potential. Does that make sense, Ray? It does. I love that you did that. You talked a little bit later in the funnel, but in today's SDR world, where they're the top of the funnel filler, sometimes 30, 40% of pipeline, one of the things that I found is with technologies like conversational intelligence combined with metrics, you can look at, oh, well, this SDR is doing an average of 32 outreaches to every conversation but their conversation to scheduled meeting rate is 25% lower than their peer group. So now you can go listen to that conversational intelligence recording and understand number one, what are they doing at the end of that call that's not resulting in a meeting? Does that make exactly. sense? I think you can be totally. even more finely pinpoint the issues today. But Mark, here's a question for you, why? Why do so many organizations, they measure activities, activities to conversation, conversation to scheduled meeting, maybe scheduled meeting to held meeting, but they're really not providing coaching on where each individual rep has some opportunities for improvement. It's still not happening the majority of companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Why is, it is that? It's, yeah, it's, I'll back it up for one second, Ray, just to make a comment. Like I'm envious of today's sales leaders and ops leaders because we didn't have any of this stuff in 06, right? It was really just Salesforce. And I just spent a ton of dough on like Salesforce consulting to like soup up the system to just work the way I wanted to work it. And today, and I remember like, you know, I'm pretty good friends with the folks over at Gone.io and have collaborated with some of the chorus folks. And there's a whole sector there, right? As you're pointing out, and some of this like sales and conversational intelligence that we didn't have. They tell stories that I told them where back in the day, I was literally, uh, I had an hour commute to and from work. I was literally had my laptop seat buckled into the passenger seat, hooked up to a Bluetooth speaker, listening to sales calls because the files were too big to get onto my phone. Right. So it's just like, I'm so envious, Ray, of like this today's environment that you're, you're talking about. Now to your question, why don't they? It's, it's really, I think, comes down to being reactive versus proactive. I don't even know where it starts. It almost starts in like the annual planning process. When we got our act together, we had our annual plan at HubSpot done in the September, October timeframe, which is so critical. You know, and because just let's do the math, like most organizations are waiting till like January 5th, right? It's like, wait, we can't think about 23 right now. We're trying to close out. We're only at like 79% on Q4. We got to get to the number. And they're right up until December 31st, 11.59. They are chasing that number. And then they, they celebrate New Year's with their loved ones. And they come back in the office in that first week of January, if not the first month, they're doing 23 annual planning. And what they do, Ray, is they're like, okay, we got to double again. We got to double again. And so what's that going to take? Oh boy. Looks like we're going to have to hire 23 salespeople to get that number. And we can't hire them spread out over the year because that doesn't get us there. We have to hire them all right now. February 1st, we need 23 new salespeople and they're going to produce a million dollars each. And yeah, what about the ramp time? Screw the ramp time. Let's go find those salespeople. So it's, and I think that's what happens, Ray, is like, I think it kind of originates in the annual planning process where it, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I got to go out do a thousand interviews. I hire these 23 people. Okay, let's get to the number. And it's like, oh my God, we're so far behind. Get me on the calls. I'm the VP of sales. Get me in front of many customers as possible. You're completely in reactive mode. And if you, if you can just like, maybe just try to get that annual plan, like, carve out Friday afternoon in October and get that 23 plan so that you know that you actually, your hiring in Q4 drives your growth in the next year, if not before that. Yeah. And so that's, and that probably is the starting point, Ray. I think it's a great starting point. And it gives you time to do something that almost less than 12% of the companies I work with do. And that is take that annual plan that has 10 million of new ARR and 5 million of growth ARR and then cascade the objectives with measurable metrics down to how many activities does each SDR need to make? What's the conversion rate need to be to schedule a meeting and ultimately to new closed ARR so I can do capacity planning all the way down to my activity level? Almost no one does that, Mark. They just say, that's, well, that's, it's 100 activities. That's so important, Ray. And so like, hopefully this is, I don't talk to your audience that much. You've got a nice concentration of finance and, and go to market. And, and hopefully we can get some more better thinking happening here. Cause you're exactly right. Like most of these annual plans is like, it's very top down, right? It's very, it's, it's kind of like, okay, 
we did 15 million this year. The VCs tell us we have to do 30. That's what they say. And so like, okay, 30. And, and that's how we come up with it. And then it's like, okay, our reps are doing like 700,000 each a year. So let's just divide the number of reps we need by the 700,000. That's the hiring plan. Let's make those hires in Q1. Boom, we're done. That's our plan. No way. That is why there's so much failure rate in our ecosystem and why we're reactive and why we're not predictable. And so, yeah, fine. You can have the top-down goal that your VC tells you or like whatever the analysts tell you, but you, you need to do your bottoms-up capacity planning like you're pointing out, right? And that's what very few people do is like, the basic metrics I'm looking for is like, okay, how many reps did you hire last year every quarter, like this past year? Mm-hmm. And how many reps do you plan to hire next year every quarter? That's an important change right there is like, Hiring is a pacing, not like lump sum at the beginning. It's not like, oh, 20 reps, let's absorb them into Q1 and cross our fingers. No, it's a pacing. Like you are now able to hire two reps a month. Great. Okay. So if you're telling me that you're going to hire three reps a month next month for next year, cool. I think you can do that. If you're telling me you have to hire, you're going from two reps a month to 12 reps a month, you're crazy. You're not, it's not going to happen. You're going to fail. That's one number. The other number to your point, Ray, is like, what about the demand gen formula? Like, where did your customers come from? Do you do inbound marketing and content marketing? How many leads do you get a month? Do you do SDR cold calls? How many SDRs do you have? How many appointments do they set? Or do you have a channel program? Like how many? And if you're telling me like, okay, yeah, this is how we progressed in like our SDRs produced like 20 appointments a month this past year. And as we do the math and we're going to hire all these reps, we're going to assume that our SDRs are going to produce 25 appointments a month. Okay, fine. I buy that. But if it's 45, I don't. And people just don't do that math to say like what we base our annual goals based on what Snowflake and Zoom did, because that's what everyone wants to do. And we need to base our annual goals based on the capabilities of our go-to-market engine. And And no one really understands that. And that's really important when you look at pipeline generation capacity, because if you're going to add 20 more reps, right, it's like, does my demand gen and marketing team have the resources and capacity to generate 3x more qualified pipeline than they did last year? And that brings me to another point in your book, and that is marketing. The marketing mm-hmm. SLA. And mm-hmm. when I first found the concept of RevOps Squared, it was all about using metrics to gain better alignment between marketing, sales, and customer success through shared metrics. But in the book, you talked about this kind of 360-degree lead review process that was co-owned by sales and marketing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it's so much or so important. And today, we point fingers, bad leads. You don't follow up in the leads. It needs to be a collaborative process between the sales and marketing team, right, Mark? It does. That marketing term actually made the uh, Harvard Business School case about HubSpot. It's funny. And it was coined by, I believe, Dan Tyre, a good buddy of mine who was my first salesperson. And he had 20 years more experience than I did. So taught me a lot about sales. And he's a remarkable individual if you ever look him up. But um, if we, we're just going to hone on the sales and marketing piece, you point out customer success as well, Ray, which is important. But if we're going to just hone on sales and marketing, historically, those organizations have actually hated each other, right? They've all faced those quarters where we missed the quarter and sales is like, we missed the quarter because marketing sucks and there's no leads. And marketing is like, we missed the quarter because our salespeople suck and they don't know how to sell the leads. And so we just need to get away from this, like the leads suck, the salespeople suck mentality. 
and we need to lean into the data, which is kind of you know a big part of your mission, Ray, and and mine as well. And so it starts with just sitting in the sales and marketing leader down and just being like, okay, first off, what the heck is a qualified lead, right? What are we counting as a lead? Like we both agree that if a 17-year-old like high school student in Japan downloads our ebook, that's not a lead, right? But like, what is a lead? And the VP of sales is going to sit there and say, um, a lead is when a CEO of a Fortune 500 company requests a demo. That's what a lead is. I'm like, dude, no, it's not. Like, come on, dude, that, that's not possible. And the marketing team's like, anyone that downloads anything on the website, no, that's not right either, right? So, so we should have an understanding of the companies that are in scope, our ideal customer profile. And I want to count anyone from there. That's one mistake that people do is like, oh, only directors and above, only VPs and above. BS, man, BS. Like if here's a great fit company, okay? I don't even care if the intern downloaded this stuff. You, you, got, you got 30 people cold calling all day. You're telling me that you would rather cold call than call a 23-year-old intern from a perfect fit prospect? Do your job. Call the intern, find out who asked them to download it. Find out what's going on there and go and sell, right? So like, we just need to like define our MQLs or marketing qualified leads based on our ICP, our ideal customer profile and those companies. And then we can just start doing the math on what's possible. We can benchmark ourselves using your tools, Ray, of like what organizations can do. And we can set realistic goals on a monthly or quarterly basis on how many leads will come from marketing, how many leads from will come from our SDR team. And we measure it every day and we see how we're progressing against it. And, and just real quick, Ray, like the sales team doesn't get off the hook. Like we essentially through that process, put marketing on a revenue quota because we can actually calculate the moment a lead converts, we know historically how long that takes to convert into revenue. And we can do math to see the value of that lead for the organization. So we can actually put marketing a revenue quota. And when we make that transition, sales has to be data-driven too. So like we know that if the sales team calls a lead within an hour, they are like 100 times more likely to succeed than if they wait a day. We know that if sales calls a lead, uh, an opportunity like eight times in a month, they are like nine times more likely to move that through the sales cycle than if they call it twice, right? So we can, we can build and program these behaviors into our CRM to make sure not just that marketing and the SDR team is providing the right demand gen, but that sales is treating that demand gen with respect according to the best practice that we've defined. And that's the SLA. You know, you mentioned so many things in there, and I can't believe I only have a 30-minute podcast because I could talk <clears throat> for hours with you. But- Two things. You mentioned about that intern at a Fortune you know, 50 company who downloaded it. That's also the importance of evolving your metrics, things like a marketing qualified account or sales qualified account in combination with that MQL or SQL can be even more informative of the value of each individual, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's where we've gone through weird progressions over the last few decades of like almost like all cold calling decades ago to the advent of the internet enabling inbound and content marketing where leads were coming off the website, which was fantastic and lowered sales cycles, but it became, it created an obsession over the individual and away from the account. And I think that's what triggered this more recent movement around account-based marketing and account-based selling, which is really like, this isn't an individual we're selling, we're selling an overall account. And we might, if especially for big ones, and if you look at the account-based marketing and selling literature, 
that could mean like a few inbound leads from lower level people. It could be a whole bunch of like outbound prospecting to different C-level or VP-level folks. And that prospecting is very different depending on the persona. We're going to sell the CFO of a major organization differently than the COO, differently than the CTO versus the CMO. They're all contributors to the decision, depending on what we're selling, but they they care about that purchase in a very different way. And so you're, you're absolutely right, Ray, is like, we have to get away from the MQL, the contact and the lead, and look at this as an overall account and who is the individual within that account and how do they contribute to the broader decision. And I often don't do this on on the podcast because it's all about you, the guest, not me. But the other thing I would say is you talked about marketing, owning a revenue pipeline. We did some recent research with Lean Data and only 18% of B2B SaaS companies are measuring the cost to generate $1 of qualified pipeline. So please Mm. also measure the efficiency of that demand generation investment to say, what's my most efficient ways of driving qualified pipeline all the way through to customers? Because with 18% doing it, we have a lot of room for better metrics and form decision-making, Mark. I love that, right? Job knowledge as it comes. We're just trying <laughs> okay. to help the ecosystem. <laughs> and we're going to do something all great entrepreneurs do, and we're going to pivot. And I want mm-hmm. to pivot to the catalyst for you founding the Stage 2 Capital Fund and really using go-to-market operators, executives, as a key part of your limited partner strategy. Yeah, sure. So I co-founded it with a gentleman named Jay Poe, who was over at Bessemer. This is back in 2018. And uh, I was in like a four or five year different stage of my career where we had taken HubSpot Public, I think in 2014, 15, something like that. And um, I was resting. <laughs> I was at Harvard Business School resting and building up their uh, sales curriculum and was spending a lot of time with startups, you know, on on boards and and doing some angel investing and advising and a handful of them turned into unicorns, Asana and Drift and Catalint and Salsify and some of these businesses, VTS is a good one in New York. And uh, some of them failed. And it was the first time in my career where I wasn't 80 hours a week deep in one play, but spread across hundreds when you factor in my conversation with students and the ecosystem and speeches I did. And I started to really obsess over the high failure rate that occurs in the the startup ecosystem and just felt like it was unnecessary. In fact, like there was a lot of research that showed the failure rate of a series A, a series B, and a series C company was very similar. And so that statistically signaled to me that we we should be de-risking those investments as they go. And there's something wrong with how the way we're scaling. And many of the reflections led back to two critical strategic decisions around when does an organization choose to scale revenue and how fast do they do it? And I found that like the inappropriate answer to those strategic questions was causing a lot of failure. I started developing my next work called The Science of Scaling, which I've been at it for about five, six years it's on the stage two website in the form of a 40 page ebook if you want to check it out. And it allows organizations, many of which, many of the topics we've talked about today, it allows an organization to calculate using their own internal performance data when precisely they are ready to scale revenue and the appropriate pacing on that revenue scale, as opposed to benchmarking themselves out against some crazy unicorn that they're just, maybe they can go faster than them, maybe they can't, but it, it informs them. And so that work, I, I met my co-founder, Jay, kind of around the time when I was 
kind of codifying that work. And he was at Bessemer, as I mentioned, and said he was a revenue venture capitalist. <laughs> and I was like, what is a revenue venture capitalist? And he said, he said, there's a lot of people in VC who come up through traditional finance, and that's fine. They're great investors. They can help organizations with capital structure and corporate strategy, et cetera. But so many of the businesses are dependent on a very strong revenue strategy and execution. And he just felt like a lot of the investors who have a big voice at the board table aren't adequately prepared and trained around that conversation. And he was going to SDR school on Saturdays to learn how to sell. And so he was really knowledgeable for a gentleman who hadn't run a team before. And he asked if I'd help him with like a go-to-market accelerator at Bessemer, which we did for a few months. And then he said, this is a fund. Like we need to start, we need to bring together the best CROs, CMOs, CCOs, RevOps leaders in the world into a fund and use that platform to support the next generation of entrepreneurs and their startups with their revenue scaling strategy. And so it's come to life. It was, uh, we're three funds in now, just closed 150 million at the beginning of this year for our third fund. We've got about 35 companies across the three portfolios and we've got about 400 CROs, CMOs, CCOs as our backers from like Snowflake and Zoom and Atlassian and Salesforce and Oracle and SAP. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's actually shocking actually how, how quickly it's all come together, uh, which has been a lot of fun, right? Mark, let me ask this. We have a lot of go-to-market executives at very successful SaaS companies in our listening audience. If they're interested in saying, how do I potentially get involved in the next fund? Is there any insights you can provide, Mark? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just email me at mark at stage2.capital. Uh, stage, the number two.capital. And yeah, we'll, we'll probably raise like this. We usually deploy funds over two to three years. So we're probably a year or two away, but we have other smaller instruments around accelerator stuff that to get people involved. And I, I find that people... I don't know if they're talking me up or whatever, but they just, every time I see them, I'm like, thank you so much for putting this together. This is an amazing platform for me. And I think what it is, is like, yes, they are very bullish around the financial returns that can come from it. But on equal footing for them is they miss the days when they were working at that 10 person or 20 person company and they don't want to do it again, you know, at, the, at, at their success, but they want to help. And there isn't a really formal platform to allow them to do that. So, so this is a great platform for them. It's a learning moment for them because a lot of them don't have a lot of experience in investing and, and we do a lot of teaching around that too. Um, so yeah, welcome any sort of uh, uh, folks that want to learn more. And Mark, I think you captured something really important. This industry, the B2B SaaS and cloud industry is so giving. When people experience success, they want to pay it forward by paying it back or pay it back by paying it forward, I guess. And I think you've captured something because all these people want to be operating partners at traditional VCs or private equity firms. You've given them an opportunity to be, quote unquote, almost like an operating partner while being a limited partner at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, because we, I wish I could count how many touch points we create between these startups and these individuals. I mean, I know we've set up somewhere in like the range of 70 or so advisory relationships. Never mind all the workshops we've done, all the, every deal we look at, we have five LPs that are involved from a diligence perspective. So there's just like, it's a, it's just an amazing piece. And to your point, Ray, like 
yes, the venture ecosystem has attempted to bring go-to-market excellence into their discipline, but it's often done in the form of a venture partner who is like paid handsomely, like relative to what they can make as a CRO, but is usually like not given much of the carry, you know, the bonus of a venture capital system. So with our within our partnership, we have half traditional finance investors and half go-to-market partners, and they're on at least equal footing. You know, we really elevate that perspective. And also we have an appreciation that I think in my experience with a lot of the venture ecosystem where they have this venture partner and that person worked at Oracle for 17 years and they had great success, but they really only saw like the Oracle playbook. And it's really difficult when they're talking to like a product-led growth company that's selling into SMBs, or if they're talking to like an insure tech company that's selling through a complex channel program, you know, it really takes like a lot of contextual pivoting and, and breadth to do that well. And I, I feel like a lot of the, the venture partner approach didn't appreciate that. They just were like, oh, this is our, this is our sales expert and he or she can handle any situation. Right. And like, I, I don't think I can, but I have 400 buddies in my Rolodex that I know who to call that have very deep expertise in the context we're talking about. Mark, context is so important. I talk about metrics and benchmarks every day, all day long yeah. in context. They need to be relevant to your stage of company and your type of company. Same with advisors. They need to have the same context that you're facing right now. Man, I hate to do this, but we got to wrap up. So I'm going to give the audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better just on three quick questions. Sure. And the first question is, and you talk to hundreds probably every month, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow as we're heading into 2023? I would say like check out Sales Impact Academy is something that we've leaned into pretty heavily. And Dan Summers taking over the CEO seat there had a lot of success in ed tech. And since we are talking a little about sales, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that believe that sales training enablement is going to move away from the typical like workshop environment to maybe something a little more asynchronous and digitally driven. And I believe Sales Impact Academy has a, a big opportunity to play a role in that transformation. So that would be one I, I check out. It's a great one. Second question, is there a tool that every SaaS company should be using and it can't be HubSpot? But that you <laughs> see, man, this yeah. is such an important tool to for SaaS, early stage SaaS companies to be using today. I would, I'm going to just throw you two. One's a portfolio, one and one's a not real quick. Just quota path is uh, one that we're really bullish on. I don't think the sales compensation arena has been codified and instrumented as much as it should be from a tooling perspective. And AJ and his team are doing a great job of doing that. So um, I feel like a lot of founders overlook how valuable the compensation plan is toward the alignment with their strategy. So check that one out and and some of the best practices that they're pushing forward. And then outside of the portfolio, I'll just go back to gone.io. I mean, if you want to be data-driven, like take advantage of the approach to machine learning, artificial intelligence to analyze your sales calls. Just even the basic, like the top third of reps talk less than 50% of the time on the call and the bottom third of reps talk more than 70% on their call. Why isn't that part of the go-to-market deck at the board level? Why, why aren't we analyzing like what percent of our reps talking on the, flo- on the first call so we can understand, are we running a good discovery consultative oriented process or not? 
to help us truly diagnose is why why revenue numbers aren't where they want to be. So I, I would I would check out that one. That's a good one. And by the way, when you go check out Gong.io, check out Gong Labs on their website. They have so many great benchmarks that so talk much. about you know how much time someone talks to a deal moving forward, et cetera. Last question, Mark. Um, and you talk to current college students with your um, the sales curriculum you lead at Harvard mm-hmm. Business School, and I think maybe a couple other um, organizations have adopted it. But what advice do you give to that? very recent college grad or you know graduate who says i want to be the next great b2b SaaS founder what advice do you give them right now you got to carry a quota if you want to do that you know especially at the folks i'm talking to are of the higher iq benchmarks and i wouldn't recommend they carry a quota forever i don't i, I think that that honestly is probably a little too constrained for their potential in terms of the impact that they can make on the ecosystem but it's a necessary piece toward being a good leader later on. And when you compare something like, you know, any, anything like a great engineering degree, uh, an MBA, Harvard, whatever, the business acumen that it gives you, the strategic acumen it gives you with the sales chops to how to, how to be a good salesperson, how to hire good salespeople, how to enable good salespeople. That is an, a really dangerous marketable combination that we need more of in the ecosystem. So that's what I asked them to do. Don't do it for five years, but go do it for two and just like earn your stripes. And it's hard for them because you can't hide behind the degree. At the end of the day, you're either in the top bottom 20% or the top 20%. And it doesn't matter where you grew up or where you went to school. So. That's great advice because if you want to be a founder, the reality of founder-led sales is very different once you actually have to go out there and get your first five, 10 customers. So valuable to have that experience if you're going to embark on that journey. Well, that's unfortunately an end to today's episode of Metrics Major Up. Mark Reberge, thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks, Ray. It was a pleasure. And by the way, I highly recommend everyone go read the science of scaling on the Stage 2 Capital site because I must admit I haven't read it yet. And it's the first I'm going to do when we're done with this podcast work. Great. I hope you enjoy it. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests we have, like Mark Verberge and the amazing content, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Give us that five-star rating and provide us a review or recommendation how we can make the content even better for your journey. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.